It's the new year and time for the new you. You've thought about running for political office, but don't know where to start. Before you start any planning, you need to secure your name online with a yourname.vote web domain. This means your constituents will know they are learning about the real you when they surf the web. Secure your domain from GoDaddy.com today. Welcome to another fantastic episode of Breaking Battlegrounds with your hosts Chuck Warren and Sam Stone. Our first guest up today and someone we are very pleased to have on the line with us, Jason Willick, opinion columnist for the Washington Post and author of some some pretty important pieces that I don't think people are paying enough attention to considering what's going on around the world. Uh, Jason, thank you for joining us and welcome to the program. Great to be with you guys. Thanks. Jason, let's talk about the article you had out recently this week, why the U.S. must calculate a solvency risk as it arms Ukraine. Tell our audience a little bit about what is that solvency risk um, and how how dangerous is it? Sure. So the term solvency, um, I'm borrowing from Walter Lippmann, who uh, was the famous American journalist. And in 1943, during World War II, he wrote a book, um, about U.S. foreign policy. And I would say his thesis was basically that the goal of U.S. foreign policy is to remain solvent, by which he means having commitments that match its resources, that what it says it's going to do, it has enough power to back it up. And so he was sort of proposing the idea that we think of this sort of almost in financial terms, where you know, if, if there's a bank account, the bank needs to have enough money to pay the person to withdraw from the account. So if we have, if we say we're going to protect X country and Y country and uh, maintain security in this region and that region, uh, it can't just be something we say. It has to be something that we have uh, the ability to do. And if we end up having obligations that exceed our resources, the same way that, you know, if a person has debts that exceed their, their own financial position, uh, there's a risk of them going bankrupt, sort of there being a run on the bank and uh, them losing uh, the ability to uh, pay back all their debtors. So, you know, the U.S. right now has a lot of commitments. We have in the Middle East, in Europe, in Asia. And my point was we're drawing down uh, some of that power in Europe and with sending weapons to Ukraine. And so there's there's a risk. We've got to pay attention to our to our balance sheet there and make sure there isn't uh, insolvency where we run out, where we spend too much money on one commitment and run out uh, on some of the others. Well, it's just it's our supply chain doesn't have the ability to recover from what we're sending to Ukraine. And, and we're not here arguing, should we not be in Ukraine? But I, I, there was an interesting piece, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal, talking about this supply shortage. And you had one person say, well, look, we're, we're in serious danger if this goes more than six months. Does anybody here talking believe this doesn't go more than six months? Right, right. That was, the, yeah, the Navy Secretary, Carlos Del Toro, you know, said if this goes more than six months or a year, it's going to get even more difficult with the, with the supply chain. Um, you know, there's there's certain weapons that we're sending to Ukraine, you know, 150 millimeter ammunition, uh, javelins, stingers, you know, they all have a different supply chain and different uses. But I think especially, you know, the, the supply chains, the companies sort of need to focus on one thing. If you're they're using all their energy and all their factories and so on, building um, ammunition for Ukraine or javelins for Ukraine, they might not have the ability to fill orders to Taiwan, for example, as quickly, and there's going to be a growing backlog. So I think, you know, that is a worry, and I think the administration is worried about it to some extent. And I'd say the best-case scenario is we use this as, like, a learning moment and say the way that we're doing military procurement right now is just not adequate for right. um, all the commitments that we have. Right. So the Wall Street Journal article I was referring to, they had – Admiral Darrell Cottle, he's the head of the U.S. Fleet Forces Command, and he just called out the defense industry. And his quote was, I'm not forgiving of the fact they're not delivering the ordinance we need. He asked about balancing the U.S. military readiness and U.S. shipments of billions of dollars of assistance to Ukraine. All this stuff about COVID, this, parts, supply chain, I just don't really care. We've all got tough jobs. So I am sure this is not the first time the U.S. has dealt with it. How did they deal with it during World War II? 
I mean, they had to amp up production of planes and trucks and jeeps and tanks. How did they do it then? Yeah, well, you know, there's a lot of things. It's not just with the military. People will point out that, you know, the Golden Gate Bridge could be built um, <laughs> right. you know, in, in such a fast, fast period compared to the regulatory approval process now with environmental permissions and zoning and blah, blah, blah. So a lot of things, really, it does seem like we have more red tape that makes it uh, take longer to build. I think the most recent Pentagon budget does sort of provide, try to provide some waivers on some of these procurement requirements that could slow it down. I think also, you know, people have pointed out that the number of companies supplying stuff has shrunk. It used to be that there was a, a bigger group of companies that would make bids uh, to build these things for the government, but now there's sort of a smaller number of uh, of companies. So I think there's a there's a variety of things, and I think Jake Sullivan said that um, he wants to look into this as a national security advisor uh, because I think it's a structural thing. I mean, it's we haven't had have for a while, you know, since the end of the Cold War at least, a defense industry that was geared to really supply us, you know, the equipment for real great power wars and especially ammunition. I mean, that's that's the biggest thing in this war in Ukraine. It's like they're you know they're burning through more artillery shells in. Um, you know, X number of days than we can make in, in a whole month. J- Jason, is there an argument to be made there? Because we've seen a lot of consolidations in the defense industry. The, there's a lot of talk in Washington, obviously, about breaking up big tech. Is there some consideration for trying to, whether via, you know, opportunities for startups or that sort of thing, to expand the number of companies that are now involved in the in defense procurement? Because that, that actually seems like a major issue. The larger a company gets, the more focused on efficiencies they're going to be, which limits their ability to quickly scale up production. I think people are going to start looking at that. And I mean, you mentioned big tech. I mean, there's increasingly less of a difference between big tech and military because, uh, you know, these companies, the kinds of computer programs that are in these precision missiles, you know, Palantir, uh, you know, this um, Silicon Valley firm has been involved in some of that. So there's increasingly sort of um, a merger between those two fields where the arms industry has to be um, has to be synced up with the latest high tech stuff and information age. So I think people are going to look at that. Yeah, I, I honestly don't know enough as to um, as to whether breaking up is the right solution. I do think, you know, you want uh, the Pentagon to certainly create incentives for new kinds of players to make make bids uh, for new kinds of technologies and weapons. Um, but I think, you know, it's something we have to look at the procurement process, uh, the budget, uh, the regulatory environment, um, maybe antitrust, although, you know, I, I tend to think that would be kind of a blunt tool. Yeah, the procurement process that you hit on, one of the big deficits for a startup company is that the procurement process is so complicated, right, that simply making a, a, a procurement that will meet the standards takes a huge amount of time and effort. Big companies have a lot of experience, hence a, a, an advantage in that area already baked in. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, there's new um, there's new uh, players in the space, though, that you sometimes hear about. Andreal, um, you hear about this, this company, uh, Sail Drone, um, that, that is making... Um, boats that the Iranians seized in the in the Persian Gulf. Um, so you hear about sort of some new companies uh, coming up. It's a question of, um, you know, and I think it's something where, you know, it's a huge bureaucracy. It's a huge budget. There's, you know, so many departments. And, you know, it's partly about people creating relationships to know what the government wants and what it's going to ask for and what Congress is going to sign off on. But, I'm hopeful, you know, that American, you know, tradition of innovation, which is still on the cutting edge and we've seen in Ukraine, you know, one thing we've seen is that the technology that we have available to us is superior to the Russian technology that was also, you know, visible during the first Gulf War, just the level of precision that's available is higher. Um, I think, you know, it's probably less a problem of like having a technological edge, at least for now, at least against Russia, maybe not against China but just about quantity. So I think that's really something people are going to, people are going to have to deal with. And I think, um, you know, we're just starting. I think it's something people are just starting to think about in Washington. 
Uh, as the Soviets said, quantity has a quality all its own. <laughs> um, right, right. So the U.S. defense industrial base, it just lacks right now an adequate ability for surge capacity. So say we have to go defend Taiwan, which Joe Biden keeps saying we will do. Is there something we can learn? And I don't want to, dear listeners, we don't want to get involved in the, in the validity of the COVID vaccine. But it seems like Trump dropped some things that that could come to the market quick. Do we have to do something like that to produce what we need for our military in case we have to use it for another conflict? I think, I mean, I think, like you said, with the Project Warp Speed and the vaccines, that was the kind of government-led um, process that you would have to see in an emergency where they, you know, they basically told the pharmaceutical companies, look, whether it works or not, we're buying, you know, such as we're going to cover all your costs, we're going to buy all this stuff, we're going to waive every regulation we can find to make it as fast as possible. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that you know, that probably is the kind of wartime footing that the U.S. was on in World War II. Um, I don't think that there's sort of the political will right now to, to start doing that because there are problems with come with it, right? You, you know, if you have less regulation, then you're going to have more uh, maybe corruption or, or more stuff that doesn't work. You know, it, it's, um, it's going to create some problems, but it is the emergency posture. Um, I think... You know, we have to think about what weapons do we need uh, with regard to Taiwan and how many do we need? I think we want to arm the Taiwanese with things like javelins, like which the Ukrainians used against right. tanks. Um, I think, you know, we want long range weapons. Trump exited the INS Treaty, the Intermediate Range uh, Nuclear Forces Treaty, which banned us from having not just nuclear missiles, but all sorts of ground launch missiles that we can put in the Pacific. So I think now that 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 uh, constraint is gone. You know, there's more missiles that could be ordered and put in places like Guam and Philippines and Australia. I mean, if we were serious about um, increasing deterrence fast, these were the kinds of things that we would do. Um, we have one minute left until we go to break. Why don't you tell folks how they could read what you write and how they got, get in contact with you, et cetera? Well, I'm a columnist at the Washington Post, so you can uh, look me up at Jason Willick. And you can uh, get an email when my columns come out if you sign up for it. And I'm also on Twitter at J.A. Willick. Fantastic. We're going to be coming right back here with more from Jason Willick, opinion columnist for The Washington Post. In just a moment, we want to talk a little bit more. We were starting to lead into uh, talking about some of the things that are going on in the Far East right now, which frankly should be pretty concerning, Chuck, to to most of the world. If they knew about it. And they, and they don't. Jason's doing fantastic work informing people and breaking battlegrounds. We'll be coming back with more from Jason in just a moment. Welcome back to Breaking Battlegrounds. I'm your host, Chuck Warren, and my co-host, Sam Stone, is with us. Today we have with us Jason Willick. He is an opinion columnist for The Washington Post, formerly of The Wall Street Journal. And we talked originally about his piece about the U.S. capacity uh, for reproducing military hardware and equipment. And now we want to talk this segment about an opinion piece he had come out in late December called The Grand Strategy Behind Japan's Defense Buildup. And basically what's happened is Japan announced in December – that it will surge defense spending by more than 50% over the next five years and acquire advanced missiles that can strike Eurasian mainland. Jason, what does this mean for the world? And because they're doing this, is this a failure of U.S. leadership? It means that <laughs> Japan is um, is very concerned about it, things in its neighborhood in Northeast Asia, where its neighbors with Russia and North Korea and China especially and it means that it wants, you know, it thinks that if there's a war with China uh, over Taiwan, it will, it may very well get involved and it wants or has to be involved because of the American bases there and that it wants the ability to defend itself. So it's both, you know, it's a kind of a paradox. Like you said, it's both good for us, good for us that they are, um, there's going to be more of our allies 
um, uh, spending on their defense. It also shows, you know, just how nervous and just how bad things are um, in Northeast Asia. Jason, post-World War II, Japan's defense force was was very, you know, known for building up defensive weaponry only. But the U.S., particularly through the Gulf War, showed that a doctrine of deep strike can be the most effective deterrent. Is that the direction Japan is going with their weaponry right now? And does that change the the dynamics uh, with China and with some of those other countries if they're acquiring weapons that can strike into the mainland? Yeah, I think, you know, these days, especially China has very advanced rocket force, the PLA rocket force. Missiles are kind of the name of the game in um, East Asia right now. So Japan wants to make sure that China or whoever else thinks twice before they uh, strike Japan because they know that they would get hit back, especially in a war over Taiwan when there's a lot of uncertainty. What's the U.S. doing? Is it spending all of its forces in the Taiwan Strait? Is it going to, you know, defend Japan, have have enough resources to defend Japan? So, yes, it's about building deterrent um, and, you know, defensive and, like you said, offense, the ability to have an offensive strike is is a good deterrent and therefore defensive in its own way. So you you quoted in your opinion piece um, a professor on Japanese politics, and he compared Japanese politics to a blade of plate of peas. It never moves, he recalled. But if you tilt the plate a little bit, they all roll to one side. Is that what's happening now to the Japanese public, that they're saying, look, we need to be able to defend ourselves and take more of an offensive posture? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I visited Japan for the first time uh, shortly before this policy was announced and, you know, spoke to some government officials, and they're, they're very committed to this. They've clearly thought it through very deliberately and carefully and decided that this is the, the best path forward in the interests of their people. And I think, you know, I'm not an expert on Japanese history, but I do think if you look at it, it can have these um, fairly rapid changes in opinion, and then those are executed on. I mean, I think in America, you know, we elect one person, we elect another person, we go in one direction, we go in another direction. I think in Japan, one quality of their political system is it's more consensus-based. And so when they decide they go in one direction, they really do it. How much are people in D.C., people you talk to, congressional staff, how worried are they about, A, the solvency risk, and B, what's going over in in Asia? Are they... Are people paying attention to this? Are they focusing on these matters? The rest of the country certainly isn't. Is there an adult? Think, in the, is there an adult in the room? I guess I'm asking. Is there an adult in the room saying, "Hey, we need to pay attention"? Well, my sense on the solvency thing is that for the first um, year, I mean, the Ukraine war has been going on eleven months now. I suppose you know, for the first few months of it, first you know, until a couple months ago, you know, it was nobody was talking about. Uh, the uh, trade-off between uh, sending weapons to Europe and making preparedness in East Asia. I think all of a sudden in the last few weeks, couple months, you have started to see a real attention to this, like, hold on, we are running low, we are not making munitions fast enough, we do not have enough munitions to have a war with China that lasts a long time and continue to uh, produce them if the Ukraine war is any guide. We really need to look at this. So I think there has been a real shift in the last couple of weeks to pay attention to that trade-off, and I think that's a heartening sign because hopefully we can we can learn from this. I think in Asia, I would say, you know, there's some partisan debate over Ukraine. Um, there's there's differences. I think in Asia there has been a consensus, really, started by Trump. Um, you know, even though even though it was a Trump idea, and what, most of which were highly polarizing. I think that the idea that we need to focus on Asia has really carried over to the to the Biden staff. And, uh, you know, people can argue the extent that they're really delivering on it. But at least in theory, I think everybody agrees Asia is the priority. Jason, this is just speculation on my part. We only have a, about a minute here before I have to let you go. But um how much is the is there a relationship between the escalation bringing giving Ukraine tanks and per, perhaps the idea that we need to do things to try to end this war more quickly to avoid the solvency issue? I think I mean I think 
one way of dealing with the solvency issue, right, and and avoiding having, uh, you know, too many commitments in both places is to beat Russia really fast. So that that part of the that demand on our attention goes away and we can focus on Asia. I think instead, you know, we're just seeing a grinding, long, slow war. But I think the tanks are part of the idea that, you know, if we defeat Russia, then we can focus on Asia. Whether that's going to work, I tend to think it's going to be a, a more... Uh, you know, that this is well, not going to see a clear victory. Yeah, but there's nothing quick. I mean, how fast can they get 31 tanks over there and train them? I mean, that's the whole problem with this. I just see this grinding on. And again, I don't think as a hopeful, peaceful world, you can allow Russia to just say, oh, I want this country. I think that's a horribly bad trend. But how fast can you go shipping 31 tanks over and training these folks? I mean, six months at best. I, I agree. I, I think... Um, I do not think we're going to see a quick resolution no. to this war. The one thing I would say about tanks, and I mentioned this in the piece, is tanks are not a weapon that the U.S. is primarily going to be using right. um, in East Asia because that's that's a sea. Right. We're talking about air and sea, not not land. So I don't think there's really a cost um, directly, at least uh, from tanks. But look, I agree with you. I'm I'm. I don't think anybody really has a good idea of how this war is going to end or when. Right. Fantastic. Jason Willick, opinion columnist for The Washington Post. Folks, make sure you uh, subscribe to The Washington Post. Follow his work there. Jason, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Yeah, thank you, guys. Have a good weekend. Thank you. Folks, are you concerned with stock market volatility, especially with Joe Biden in office? What if you could invest in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return that's not correlated to the stock market, a portfolio where you'll know what each monthly statement will look like with no surprises? You can turn your monthly income on or off, compound it, whatever you choose. There's no loss of principle if you need your money back at any time. Uh, This is a secure collateralized portfolio that delivers a high fixed interest rate. And by investing, you can actually do good. You can help people get their student loans paid off. So go to investyrefi.com. Uh, that is invest, the letter Y, R-E-F-Y dot com, or call them at 888-Y-REFI-24 and find yourself a great way to earn up to 10.25% rate of return on your money. Breaking Battlegrounds, back in just a moment. You deserve a home that's beautiful and stylish. At Overstock, you don't have to choose between low prices and quality. Find new on-trend home goods that reflect your taste and don't compromise on value. You can be proud of your home and design a space where you feel like you, all under budget. Plus, you get free shipping on everything in the continental United States. Overstock is where quality furniture and decor cost less. Welcome back to Breaking Battlegrounds with your host Chuck Warren and Sam Stone in studio with us now. And thank you for joining us. Mark Joseph Mongolitz, uh, Scottsdale-based content manager and financial newsletter and, uh, for a financial newsletter, The Haymaker, which I was introduced to via Chuck, and I've enjoyed reading. Oh, great. So thank you so much. Uh, you have written uh, quite a bit about the impossibly negative implications of an AI-driven world. Uh, well, a lot in one piece. I don't know about quite a bit yet, but I'm, I'm getting started. <laughs> what is artificial? Okay, so... Yeah. A lot of our audience has heard this term AI. Yeah. They may have seen it on a Netflix limited series. Sure. They know there's ominous music playing when you mention it. And then there's technologists who think this is the best thing since sliced bread right. or fire, whatever the two. What is artificial intelligence, better known as AI? Yeah, I think people hear AI and they they think um, almost reflexively of an anthropomorphic, you know, a humanoid robot uh, sitting alongside them engaging in human-like behaviors and whatnot. But, it, it, you know, that's the stuff really more of, uh, of Black Mirror or, or whatever other programming out there is dealing with robotics and the like. Um, AI is, is really a uh, – it is a means by which to, through software and, and, and various uh, uh, models, to replicate what up until pretty recently has been the domain of the human mind. Um, things from you know, language generation to object recognition – uh, to pattern recognition and 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 uh, and prediction, um, it's a tool that's meant to to map what map and replicate what the human mind does um, using software. Um, you know, at at its very best, it's a lot better than us in certain ways, um, but it's also very limited. You know, as far as we know, it's not self aware. Um, that that you know, crossing that that threshold might be impossible for all we know. But in certain aspects, uh, it is demonstrably superior. 
um, you know, from the, the, the example people like to use is chess. You know, the best chess master will, will, will never be whatever. It used to be deep blue. I think it's, you know, probably bright red now or whatever the... <laughs> D- deep blue version 73.4. Sure, yeah. And I, I was speaking with a, an engineer uh, friend of mine who, who was saying, apparently if, if you take away one pawn from the AI side... That some of the grandmasters can can play to a stalemate. I, I don't know that. And if you take away two, some can actually win. Now that's actually huge because if you take away you know one or two pawns, you're you're limiting, you know what obviously what the AI can do by several orders of magnitude and whatnot. So it, it is significant, but it, it means we're maybe not as far behind as as, as I once thought. <laughs> well, in your piece, you had this yeah. great analogy about the movie Jurassic Park. Yeah. Now, in your best yeah. storytelling voice, yes. share with us that that scene. I'd love to. And then tell us what the pros and cons are yes AI. yeah so it this came to mind almost immediately uh last month when the um the chat gpt kind of reveal made itself known and um and it's one that I've, I've used previously especially in this era where i think there's there's kind of a um there's a, a dual orbit of scientism and tech fetishism um that are, are kind of consuming our collective psyche and you know, where we, we, we tend to get very excited about whatever's next without necessarily stopping to think about what it what it could mean, you know, negatively and, and maybe not even all that realistically, positively. But um, the scene is, is where Dr. Ian Malcolm is, uh, the Jeff Goldblum character, is um, he's responding to what he's just learned about, about Jurassic Park, the science behind the, the cloning of dinosaurs, and he's not impressed. He, he says, you know, you your scientists got so caught up with whether, whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think about whether or not they should. And I think that that's the story of AI right now. We, we are so consumed by the idea of what's, what's possible, what we can do, that we're not stopping to think about what it means for the human species. Um, and I, I shouldn't say none of us. I mean, I think th- there are concerned parties, but there's also there's a lot of excitement surrounding it that doesn't seem to make room for realistic caution or, or you know, for useful caution. Um, and so I think Malcolm's words are, you know, or I guess Michael Crichton's words technically are, um, are, are more relevant now than, than even they were. But that is a question that needs to be asked by numerous people. And right now, you know, we sort of feel like this is sort of what a techie nerd puts together or some engineering professor. Right. And people need to be aware of what's going on with this. And again, we're not opposed to it, but there has to be limits. What is the... You know, we have no. to be good guardians of it. Exactly, and that's that's one thing. I, I we were talking about this before the show. I'm I'm not uh, I'm not anti tech. I use technology, you know, uh, you know, quite abundantly in my in my career. Um, Sam uses rotary phones. So he's, he's, <laughs> he's old school. Uh, no, Chuck, I upgrade. I upgraded to a brick. <laughs> well, I got one of a Nokia brick. <laughs> well, and the fact is that e- even if you know the four of us in this room were to become luddites, it wouldn't matter. You know, the, this is happening. Like technology is happening. AI is is right. You know, it's, it's out of the bag. So I think you know my, my appeal really with with this piece and and with my kind of my, my newfound project of thinking about this is that we as a species need to to modify how we think about AI and and maybe start evaluating closely what aspects of our careers are definitively replaceable by AI and what aspects are definitively human um, rather than letting that gray area confuse everything. I, I think that's a fantastic point. We're going to be coming back in just a moment with more from Mark Joseph Monglitz talking about AI, the future potentially of humanity being tied to it and Tie in Elon Musk also. Breaking Battlegrounds back in just a moment. Welcome back to Breaking Battlegrounds with your hosts Chuck Warren and Sam Stone. Folks, if you're looking for a secure investment vehicle that allows you to make a high rate of return and actually do good while you're investing, we here at Breaking Battlegrounds recommend you check out investyrefi.com. Uh, they offer up to a 10.25% rate of return on a secure collateralized portfolio. It's a fantastic opportunity, and you'll be helping people get their student loans paid off more quickly. Call them at inv- – or go online at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then R-E-F-Y.com. Or call them at 888-YREFI24 and tell them Chuck and Sam sent you. So what countries are leaders in artificial intelligence? Yeah, so um – the, the the leaders at the moment are really the the U.S., the U.K., uh, France, uh, China, uh, and then uh, Russia, Australia are um, are also 
expanding their 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 spending. I think um, in the U.S., you, you know, a number of companies are are engaging with it: Oracle, Intel, Salesforce, Amazon. But the two I think we need to to watch most closely um, would be OpenAI, which we can talk about. You know, obviously in the Chat GPT context, um, and then Google's DeepMind, which is actually headquartered in London, um, but it it rolls up to, to Alphabet, um, which is Google's parent company. Um, Mark, I, I'm sorry, I yeah. want to back you up just a sec for yeah. folks out there who may not know what Chat GTP. Correct. Oh, what for, is Jet? Forgive and, me. And how yes. does that affect businesses as well? So I asked the CEO yeah. today what it is, and that was the question he wanted me to ask. How do you think it will affect businesses? Yeah. Okay. So let's we can get into that now. That that's really what what prompted me to write the piece. Actually, uh. Uh, kind of a loose colleague of, of mine that he he works for my boss's wealth and, uh, wealth management firm had written a piece on ChatGPT and I my piece was sort of a response to that but um, ChatGPT is sort of the it's it's the current apex of what language modeling is able to to achieve um, and describe what for our audience yes <laughs> language modeling what is language modeling uh, we're, we're dummies in no, here, no, no, Mark. no 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 not at all no I, I'm I, look I'm I'm catching up with all, all this as well we all are Every, everyone is is kind of you well know. that's the thing you're sort of a pioneer teaching well, so we have people sure. say okay what's language modeling yeah we're we're, we're, all, we're all we're all kind of marching to to ChatGPT's tune at the moment or OpenAI's tune but. Um, so basically what, what this means is that their software is, uh, OpenAI software is harvesting written content by the metric ton, right? I mean, they're just, it, it, as much as is out there, more than any human being will ever read in their lifetime, more than any thousand human beings. Every library in the world Everything, is downloading yeah, any, it all. Anything that's ever been published basically is out there, online anyway, is, is, is at their, um, is at their mercy, uh, so, so to speak, or at least at their disposal, um, and from this uh, large aggregate of, of material, they're able to churn out, um, you know, what they describe as, I think, what, what we can all perceive as being, you know, very believable uh, human-like text. Uh, you know, you, you, you ask ChatGPT to, um, to produce an essay on Charlemagne. Um, and have a student do the same, put them side by side, and even if it's a very skilled student, you know the two will probably be indistinguishable, at least in terms of if it's a very skilled student. Yes. I mean, it's an advantage if, if, yeah. you're, not, if you're not right. right. And that's, right. Well, so yeah, and, and uh, I wanted to back up really quick on that because the other thing worth, worth noting is that ChatGPT will probably be more knowledgeable than the student because it can just simply it can access more, it can retain more, it can it can Correct. summon more to the fore more quickly than than a human mind can can replicate. That doesn't necessarily mean the writing quality will be better. You know, I've 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 you know seen at least one other. There's been a lot of things about it. It's, it's not better quality a right. lot of times. Yeah, yet and yet is always the word people toss in right at that point, right where you stopped. You know, they always say yet because the the expectation is that soon enough it'll be Shakespeare, Shakespeare GPT. Um, and we, we do have that kind of mindset that things are always getting better. That's part of the tech fetishism I was talking about. It's just no matter what's happening, it's better, it's good. Keep it's it a very American way of viewing the world. Sure, yeah, it, it is pioneering, to use your earlier word, in different contexts. It is, you know, we, we, we like the idea of, of this kind of, um, well, small, small letter here, brave new world of, uh, of, of what, what tech and AI can, can yield. I think the reason ChatGPT struck a lot of people as being kind of a red flag is that, you know, when you look at other tools, like in, in, in the piece that you, you referenced earlier, I'm, I, I write about, you know, the first humans made a knife like object because they wanted to cut something, right? And there was a need and they, and they produced it and there was no question as to why they did it. They needed to cut something. With ChatGBT, the question is, you know, what are they trying to replace and why? Like, we have this this tool that's it, it, it can amaze at once, but it can also concern because, you know, as I noted, the least surprising aspect of ChatGPT was that within a couple of days of its announcement, the questions were circulating, how are students going to use this to cheat? Well, right? so, I mean, <laughs> and Google, and obviously Alphabet, I guess it's not Google now, Alphabet's so concerned that they bought Larry and Sergey back. Because they're concerned about this, Which, is that is that correct? Yeah, that- yeah. I, I'd seen something uh, maybe a couple of weeks after the the, the reveal that uh, Google had, and I don't know who, what the sourcing was on this. I don't know if this was their exact internal wording, but that Google had um, uh, adopted a code red status. Essentially, they they saw really just their, as far as I understand, only their search function was really being. Kind of right, and so if they're freaking out about it, and we're all going to agree in this room, they have some pretty smart people there. This is a concern, and folks, for you don't know, Sergey and Larry are the founders of Google. Just FYI on that. Yes, uh, Sergey Brin and uh, Larry Allison. Yeah. Larry Page. Larry Page. Uh, the page. Larry Page. Page. Yes. Yeah. So, um, yeah. 
I mean, so that's the point you're talking about again. Who's who's managing the shop? Right. And and to what end? It's not just, you know, uh, so OpenAI, the last time I looked, they have something like 400 employees, right? So it's fewer than there are people in Congress. And these people are, they're, they're working in, you know, it's not, I'm not trying to make like a Soviet analogy, but they're working in, in secrecy. I mean, certainly like trade secret uh, uh, right. sort, of, sort of level of secrecy. And they're producing software and, and tools and whatnot that could change the world. And, you know, we hope for the better, but we don't know. And And I was thinking, you know, the very nature of innovation is that it's it's undemocratic, right? Is hoping the better for the better enough? I mean, it seems like this is a time when we really need to be looking no. at guardrails no. No. on this, on looking at the implications. You've got to treat this like a bowling alley where the guardrails come out for bad yeah. bowlers like you and I. I mean, <laughs> yeah. something so, has to be there. So I, I would caution on this a little bit because I think that when you when you start talking about guardrails and any sort of um, oversight, I think you also make things like this a martyr, right? Then it becomes – you know, especially if Congress you know, starts to weigh in, then it's, you know, anyone who wants to be cool will be on the open AI side. Right? I, I'm actually thinking more in a, in a societal sense. Yeah, I mean, so, who, so who, who are the guardrails? So, for example, I mean, we all know polling shows, um, while America is still a religious country in many ways, it doesn't have the influence it once did. So are there people who deal with the moral issues, <laughs> ethics, part of these guardrails. I don't see that because a lot of people dismiss them. Elon Musk talks about this a lot, but I don't think enough people pay attention. No, because they're too busy about Twitter you know, memes. And we should know Elon Musk was, of course, one of the, the founders of OpenAI. Right. Um, so, you know... Which is concerning he was one of the founders, and now he's a little he's a little skittish. Well, it'd be interesting to know what he thinks of it. I don't know if he's said anything on this. I haven't seen him say anything publicly on it, but I'd, I'd be curious to know if he feels like it got away from him in some way, or if it's you know, I, I, I haven't thought. seen anything about that. I've just read through part of the recommended reading list on AI that he's in the past published. And it's clear from that list he's considering the moral and societal right. implications. And, and, and what, I, what I like about, about Elon Musk's take on it, without knowing the details of his open AI thoughts, is that he does seem to lean towards humanism, right? And that's – Correct. You know, that – I think – there's a few things we need to do on the guardrail side uh, to answer your your question, Chuck. I think one is we we all need to be mindful of what it is that makes us human. You know, so the the red flag for me really predates any of this. And it goes back a few years, more, seven or eight years, where I I noticed that people, when they were speaking about big tech, they would use this term and not not always negatively. It almost seemed almost, I guess, like a fetish. Again, they would say, you know, big tech's going to know you better than you know yourself. And, and with, with a shrug of the shoulder, right? right. Or, or yeah, with a kind of a smugness, right? Like, like a human being is just reducible to their Amazon shopping cart, their Netflix streaming history, and their it's a data set, which which would right? which which would be news to God, probably. Right, right, right. And 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 to the human species as a whole, because we're not we're not the sum of those things, right? Like we we are more than that. And the idea that we are reducible to some, you know, search engine entries and whatever we watched, you know, on, on a streaming service is just not, that's very, I think, dehumanizing. It's very, it's very limiting. It's very unfair to what it is to be human. Um, but I've noticed that a lot of people in like the, in the kind of the tech fetish side of, of things almost have like a, and I, I mentioned this in my piece, almost like a contempt for physical experience, like as, as if a digital version is preferable. Right. I mean, go out, you wrote a great, great analogy of that. Get outside, see the mountains, see the sky. And a lot of these people put these idiotic glasses on Which and helmets. Which just strikes me as, you know, utterly backwards. It's, you know, I, I had seen it. They want a matrix world. There are some people right. that literally want this matrix world. I think and and one, one irony I've noticed with this, too, is that a lot of the people who, and I, I might be unfairly overlapping these groups to some degree, but it seems like a lot of people who do eschew the idea of, of you know, embodied experience of, of living in the physical world in a human body, when, when you, you know, when they're gaming, they always play these hyper-powered, you know, warrior-like characters who are themselves, you know, muscular and physical. Correct. And so it's like, they still want to escape into something like that. They just maybe don't want to do the hard work of it. Yeah, go to the gym. Their own but, body, right? But, right. That's a real. That's a really fantastic it's, point. And again, there might be some unfair overlap there. I don't want to associate the whole gaming community with the the kind of like tech utopian crowd, but I think there's some overlap in that the you know there are a lot of gamers who who do sort of fetishize tech and and will get the newest whatever because just because it's available. Um, with the other red flag for me was you know. <laughs> uh, the, the, there's kind of a line going on in, amongst those who do have some concerns about this that, that Orwell got it wrong, that 1984 isn't our future. It's actually going to be capital letters now, Brave New World. Um, because, 
when you take the authoritarian route, you know, people inherently resist. But if you entertain people into submission, well, you know, that's that's an easier sell. Um, and when you add convenience to that, well, that's a very easy sell, right? And so I remember, I guess it was 2017, I was at a friend's house, guy I was in the military with. Uh, we're, we're talking, and I, I kind of cut myself off mid-sentence because I realized that I was sitting next to an Alexa. And and, 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 and this guy is, he, he's he's a kind of a gearhead, you know, gets the newest whatever. But I was, I, we were, we were talking, talking about politics like we always do. And I kind of stopped. I was like, is that, do you have an Alexa? And he said, yeah. And I said, okay. Why would you welcome a surveillance item into your home? Like, like this, is the, this is the kind of thing that, like, the, you know, the, the East Germans would have loved everyone to have had, but they, but they'd had to sneak it in, right? right? They, they would have to be subtle. Yeah, about yeah it. people didn't buy it. Well, right. but that's but yeah. that's but that's also a very American train of thought. We don't believe government is capable of doing that because we're a country of the free and the brave. Boy, and I don't know how you well, carry that belief past well, COVID. I know, but I do think but I do think yeah. there's a lot of people that believe that, right? And that's why you have that versus someone in East Germany who knew we we are we are I think by virtue of our prosperity, we are very trusting, and very naive in a lot of ways, and we also like convenience. So if even if someone knows that you know Alexa has to be listening at all times because it has to know what Alexa isn't in order to know what Alexa is, right? So it has to it has to be on at all times. We know it's surveilling. Um, but convenience was just enough to, right. to kind of win out on that. Right. Even if you have a 49% concern about the surveillance, the 51% convenience is enough for you to... Well, it's funny you out. speak about AI. So like Netflix, I do this a lot, even on Google searches. I will just look up things that have nothing, no desire to know about just to screw up their algorithms well, on me. So for example, Netflix, right? <laughs> I mean, I like comedies, but one day I'll just order for two minutes, Bob kills 85 people, right? Just to just screw them up. If, you, I mean, if you're, one, do if that you're wondering purpose. why the public data you just bought shows that Chuck <laughs> Warren loves anime. Well, so, and, and, and Chuck, that's actually kind of what I was getting at with the, the idea of reducing a person to their, their internet right. activity is because what if you know, by chance, you, you, you mean to type in, you know, whatever it is, uh, Blue Skies Hawaii, but you, you end up, you know, inadvertently typing in something else. And that one entry somehow throws off their entire picture of you. But it, it was a mistake. So, right? so, for example, we're talking about they collect this information. Mm-hmm. They just make you an algorithm. So are there good websites, say, like DuckDuckGo, who supposedly don't collect that? I use DuckDuckGo. Um, and, and uh, you know, a plug for DuckDuckGo. Jamie, we need to get them as yeah, a sponsor. I, I, <laughs> use them. I, I use them for my, my Substack uh, email as well. But um, a friend of mine had, had asked, or a colleague of mine, actually, my, my former job had asked me about, about that, uh, kind of amused by the fact that I was, I was using DuckDuckGo. And, and I said, look, Google can know a lot about me. They can know 80%. But, like... They don't have to know everything about me. Hey, you got to keep a little mystery in the romance, <laughs> right, don't the, you? Yeah, you got to keep a little mystery in the romance. That's the exa- how you keep the love going. I think the example I used keep was the like, spark. I was like, if, if I want to look up, you know, Godzilla weight compared to Empire State Building. <laughs> Mark, Mark, real quick, but yeah. we're going to bring you back for our podcast only segment, folks. So make sure you go to breakingbattlegrounds.vote. You can download that there on all your favorite podcast sites. Uh, Mark, how do folks follow you and your work? Sure, yeah. So uh, the the full time gig, as I, I think I mentioned earlier, you might have mentioned earlier, uh, is I, I work as a content manager for the Haymaker Substack. It's a finance newsletter, um, primarily working in editing capacity there. And I just launched my own Substack. It's going to be part time thing. Uh, it's called Opinions Impending. Good stuff. We're going to be coming back on the podcast only segment with more from Mark in just a moment. Breaking Battlegrounds back on the air next week. Welcome back to the podcast portion of Breaking Battlegrounds. I'm your host, Chuck Warren, my co-host, Sam Stone. Today, we're with Mark Mongilutz, who is a writer. I pronounced his last name probably wrong, but let me talk about this. You mentioned you were in the military. A long time ago, yes, sir. So tell, me, tell us a little bit about your background. How did you get into being a writer? Yeah, uh, so long, long ago, uh, the faraway land of the 90s and 80s, I, I was you know, very much enamored with the written word. Um, uh, you know, always. I mean, were you, were you a, a proficient reader as a child? Yeah, very much so. And I, I took to it far more than I did mathematics and science. And and so I, I was oftentimes found reading, you know, whatever wasn't on the curriculum because I had my own interest. And I think we're all. I think you're in a room full of people. Like <laughs> yeah, that. there is there is nobody in this room who was the mathematics expert in their in their high school. Right. Yeah. So I um. 
in any event, uh, I graduated uh, from from high school in uh, Washington, where I'm from Western Washington, about uh, forty minutes north of, of Seattle. Um, and on something of a whim, I think I, I caught everyone in my family off guard. I joined the military. Um, was that was it a whim decision or something you'd always thought about? No, not really. No, I had. Um, I, I, I think I was putty in the hands of the the recruiter because uh, not long before I something I, I might have seen. I don't know. I must have seen a film or something, but I, I saw some some guys in a, in a show wearing a DEA jacket. So I was like, oh, that'd be kind of a cool career, I think, not knowing anything about it. Um, and so when the recruiter called me, I guess this would have been March or April of 2000, uh, you know, he, he asked me what I want to do after high school and not. And I, I, you know, maybe foolishly said, oh, uh, maybe DEA. And he's like, hey, perfect. You know, <laughs> come on down. And so we trained up. And then when you go to the DEA, you know, you'll be you'll be the, the best of all of them kind of a thing. And <laughs> it's so a good I was, pitch. It's yeah, a good, it was, yeah, no, that was that was a smart play he, he on his good, part. Yeah, he was he was a good he was a good salesman. Um, and so you know, I went from not really knowing what was next in you know in April of 2000 to being in Fort Benning and uh, on uh, June 20th. So what yeah. what did you take away from the military? What life lesson did you take um, from that serving? A lot of humility. Um, you know, I remember right before I went in, or not right, right before I went in, I I spoke with a, a customer. He worked at a store there called Fred Meyer. Um, who had been in the Marines, and he was telling me about how before he joined the Marines, he thought he was the baddest guy in the block, and he learned within about five minutes um, of joining up he, that wasn't the case. Well, I didn't even go in with that. You know, I didn't even think I was the baddest guy in the block. <laughs> you were more you know? humble. Yeah, and, and even with that, I was still, you know, very humble that it, um, you know, it has a way of exposing you to a lot of your weaknesses, a lot of your, your vulnerabilities. And um, uh, I, I think, you know, first of all, an appreciation for what goes into the defense of the country is, is something I walked away with. Um, engaging with people uh, from all, all you know, obviously all walks of life. That's that's kind of the old saying about the, the military. It, it, it plunges you into an experience with with different. Yeah. Which seems to be something we're missing today. Yes. Today we go and huddle with our tribes. Exactly. We talk with, yep. Thanks to social media and AI, we are we are picking sides, and we don't get outside of a bubble. The military forces you to get to know other people. And, and, and Chuck, it um, you don't even have really the option of maintaining whatever prejudices or or misgivings you might have had. Um, you very quickly become just a fellow soldier with these people, and, and that's how you view them. It's how you view them. Uh, race, religion, creed, so on and so forth. It's not that they don't matter. Um, it's that they're, in some ways, they are sort of marginalized necessarily. And I think for the better in terms of, of you know, human interaction, um, you know, so that that's that's obviously one thing. I was also, I was in the old guard in an interesting time. Um, you know, so I, I got there right around the time the Bush v. Gore. It, it, be, again, I'm going to back you up real quick. Yeah. What is the old guard? Oh, okay. <laughs> Far afield of AI now, but uh, the, the Old Guard is the, the Army's oldest active uh, infantry regiment um, right in, in the station of Fort Myer, Virginia. Um, and they are charged, we at the time, me, we, we were charged with um, laying veterans to rest in Arlington National Cemetery, oh with handling all, all manner of, um, of ceremonies in and around the D.C. area. Um, are the guards at the Tomb of the Unknown yeah, Soldier same unit, part of same unit? Yeah, if you've ever seen the Army Drill Team, yep. that's that's yep. the same unit. Um, you, is, that, is that a pretty solemn moment? Being part of that process? Yeah, you mean being part yeah. of the the old guard as a whole? Yeah, yeah I mean it, it was unexpected as well. I mean I, I hadn't sure. knowing that would happen. Um, it turned out my my drill sergeant had come from that unit, and he was he was pretty good friends with the old, so the old guard has a permanent recruiter stationed down at Fort Benning to to get guys. Uh, into the unit, and because they were coming up on an inauguration, they didn't know if it was any Bush or Gore. I know who you guys, you're happy that it was, it was Bush. Um, but the, the world is happy. They were trying to ramp up, and so they, I think they, they recruited some X number of people more than they would normally recruit it, and myself and three or four guys in the platoon. Pretty late in the cycle, actually. It was like three or four, uh, maybe like actually two or three weeks from graduation i think we got we got pulled up um and so they they rip up your old contract tell you where you're going next they let me keep my airborne school so so i didn't do that right after wow um came home i was home for thanksgiving and then arrived uh thanksgiving night in uh in fort myers so the interesting timing should should be clear because i was i was there when the pentagon got hit and oh my goodness and, and that was um in, in large part i i used to uh so 
getting way far afield here, but uh, I went back to the military in 07 to go to Afghanistan, and I used to tell a lot of those guys my old guard stories. They were really fascinated with the units. Maybe I think they made it more interesting than it actually was in their minds, but I, I, I would regale them with, with stories. I, I had been in operations for a while, so I, I, I saw the uh, the old guard from kind of a bird's eye view and just had a lot to share with them. And, and one of the, oh, the same the Alexa guy, the same guy. The Alexa yeah, guy, yeah. He, he was one I met in my second time when I went to Afghanistan. And okay. um, he had been urging me for years to write a book on, on the subject. And, and I don't know that I ever would have if not for the Pentagon story because it struck me as being unique enough, like kind of important enough. Um, to, to merit a text. Um, and then on, on top of that, um, we were activated for deployment. Well, what is the Pentagon story you're referring to? Uh, the uh, the Pentagon being struck on 9-11. Oh, okay. And then, yeah. then you've written a little bit about the rebuild also? Not the rebuild, no. Uh, the recovery effort. The recovery so, effort. Uh, we, we were there. Um, there's some dispute on this. In fact, a lot of the guys who contributed to my, to my second book, um, we weren't sure exactly, but I think it was about 24 hours after is when we arrived, and um, our the, the whole unit uh, was was taking um, shifts in, in in the recovery. So that that aspect of my my time in the military struck me as being um, worthy of of a book. And and then on top of that, the unit which hadn't deployed since Vietnam was activated uh, in two thousand three, um, and sent one company over. And it was actually my my former company. I I was a Bravo company. I went to operations, and then when I learned they were deploying, I I volunteered to go back and 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 went overseas to the Horn of Africa. Um, so we were in Djibouti and Ethiopia primarily. Some other squads went went elsewhere. But uh, Africom, yeah, the, yeah, the Centcom, yeah, yeah, and um, so that was uh between those those two aspects, you know, just being there, and then I guess to some degree the the inauguration, um, struck me as being you know there was enough kind of meat on the bone narratively to to warrant a, a book and, um. I, I spent the better part of the fall of 2016 writing it, and then the better part of the winter and early spring of 2017 trying to find a publisher, <laughs> uh, which eventually I did. Uh, and and they they actually um, they liked my idea for the second one, which was I, I compiled essays from a bunch of guys uh, who had been with me during the oh, Pentagon fantastic. recovery. And what? so I was the, I was the editor for that one. And how do, how do folks find those those books and uh, actually Amazon? Uh, so big so, tech. So so yeah yeah, yeah. folks, yeah. yell out to your Alexa. Yeah. Yes, yeah, let, let Alexa know. Alexa, I would like to order yeah, two yeah. books from a guy who doesn't like Alexa. But, um, no, you can also go directly to the publisher. It's McFarland with a D at the end. Um, they uh, they they obviously sell books directly. I, don't, I would be curious to know how many books they sell directly versus how many of their titles are sold on Amazon. <laughs> but um, if, if I can convince any listeners now to go directly to the publisher, um, I think they'd appreciate it too. That's fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. Well, what, what an amazing background. Well, since it's the podcast portion, a couple of items we'll talk about, and then we'd love to have you back to talk more about your writings on artificial intelligence. I think there's just so much to be done on it, and we need to talk more about these guardrails that I, people need to start thinking about. Well, the unwise your, decision would be just saying we're doing these guardrails. Right. There needs to be some discussion on you're, it. You're you're kind of you're mapping out my my own content uh, path for the next couple of months because I've I've got the one piece now. It's the one. Well, that, you do love the yeah, word, I, indeed. And you are dating a chatty woman, so you love the word a lot. <laughs> I know this. I know this. I'll be, yes, I'll, I'll I'll be producing more on on, on AI. And you'll be paying for that comment for the weekend, but that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> Let's talk a couple of things. So Seattle, near and dear to your heart, they're running out of space in the morgue now because of people dying of fentanyl. Yeah, did you know that. Uh, I did not know that there was a there were. They're like literally running out of space because of overdose fentanyl well, deaths. And, and what's worse about that, Chuck? People don't realize Narcan has prevented a mass wave of deaths among the fentanyl using population. But after you've used Narcan a few times, it becomes less and less effective. They're reaching the point that they're not able to revive people who have been revived with Narcan previously multiple times. Oh, and horrible. so now you're reaching that point. Um, where that's delayed a wave of death that's now hitting across this country. Yeah, Washington as, as a whole, um, I, I actually I, I took my girlfriend uh, there a couple times last year. And um, in, in a lot of ways, certainly, you know, downtown, it's, it's you can see some of the deterioration, um, you know, certainly with respect to the, the homeless encampments and, and whatnot. And uh, the, the state just seems, um, at, least the, at least Seattle itself, uh, seems unwilling to have tough conversations 
on these things. Right. It, and it, it's difficult to know why that is. I think sensitivity is a big part of it. I, I think it's one of the reasons, you know, talking about immigration, honestly, is difficult. I think people are, are, are worried about seeming too nativist or, or whatnot. And so real problems go unchecked because we just can't even find. Well, there's also there. there's also a huge industry underlying it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, so I think, you know, the the math of the situation is what it is. And I, I don't you know, I think we, we can probably talk about that. Uh, plenty, but I, I think narratively, just just getting the population to to recognize these problems is difficult because, again, I, I think we were kind of um, in one sense we are desensitized because it's all it's also so much. What what do you do? I had it's a great point because I had yes. someone here in Phoenix who was a new arrival, and I was talking about the homeless problem here that's growing very rapidly, yep. and their response was. Oh, well, just ignore them. That's what we right. do. Yeah. And, and they had just moved here from Los Angeles. Right. Where it's such a major factor, right? Six digits of homeless right. people there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and I think with, you know, on, on the immigration side, I think the you – know, I, I first started paying attention to this probably in 04. Um, I know there were um, – there were the Minutemen, right? Guys yeah. Volunteering to go down. Yeah, yeah that, that was kind of my, my awakening, so to speak, from like to the border issue. And and I think what's gone on since that time, and maybe you know preceding it, is um, is that the the maybe the immigration hawks you might call them for for lack of a of a more precise term, um, maybe some of their language or some of their earlier uh, positions were you know did lean more ter- towards the the kind of nativist side, but now it's really just a matter of actual humanitarian. Concern, oh. right? I mean, you, you have you have slave actual, trafficking. Yeah, right. yeah. I mean, it's 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 what they're well, doing to these women and these young people. It's one of the things. Evil. Yeah, it's one of the things I talk about all the time. You do not cross that border now on your own. Right. If you don't pay off a cartel, they'll kill you. No, you have I paid. Mean, you crossing that border have paid a price. Yes, and a lot of you paid a price of your soul, to and, get and you're likely to to be paying a price for years to come as an effective. Well, talking about the fentanyl. So, DeSantis signed a bill yesterday that will increase sentences for distributing fentanyl which the dealers could face either death sentence or <laughs> life in prison. And frankly, there is no different from any of us distributing fentanyl than pointing a gun at somebody's head that's loaded. It's well, the same it, it's thing. Russian roulette. Yeah, it's, it, the, same, it's, Russian it's the same roulette, thing. and that's illegal too. And it needs to be treated as such. Yeah. It's hard to talk about, though. I mean, people are – a lot of the, the, the those who should be – mindful of this, you know, on a, on a policy level are so insulated from its its realities that they just can't seem to make themselves care. Like that's, that's kind of my impression is it's it's just not it's not pressing enough um, for them. And I think you see this in, in a lot of areas. I mean, the, the people who who opine most ardently on any number of topics are actually pretty comfortably insulated from whatever policies they they're recommending or whatever policy measures they're not they're not implementing. Right. Um, I've seen a lot of that. Uh, w- weirdly enough, uh, from a lot of left-wing poli- uh, uh, publications on, on Ukraine. And it's like, there's a lot of people who will themselves never see or experience war, but they're they're very hungry for this war. It, this Correct. is a strange, no, this is you're, strange you're war. Ab- you're yeah. absolutely right. And at the same time, we can all admit we can't allow Russia just to say, you know, this week I want Ukraine, next week I want Estonia. I've told this message many times, and we're about out of time here on the podcast, but years ago I was in Estonia and met with a university professor who had served in the Soviet military. And I asked him if he ever concerned about the Russians coming back over. And he literally turned around and pointed to the bay, and there was a U.S. destroyer there. And he said simply, as long as that's there, they're never coming. And it was just – it really struck me just what America means to just world order. I mean – and I don't think Americans realize that is a heavy responsibility for a country, but there is no one else that can do well, it. Russia waited until we showed weakness. Yes. I mean th- – but that's the point. And Americans have to come to this realization. World order happens because of what we do foreign policy, militarily, economically – you are sort of this beacon to making sure the lights go on and off. And I know people don't view it that way, but just watch if America retracts and steps back, what happens to the world. No, you're, you're right there, Chuck. And I think, you know, these days it's, it's, it's not fashionable to, to speak favorably of America's stabilizing influence on the, on the world stage. Um, but I think the concern, the, the good faith concern that, that I've heard with respect to our Ukraine policy and the concerns I myself harbor is that the, the 
stories surrounding it has been simplified very much so um and and you know a, a lot of what was going on in ukraine and in the donbass and whatnot prior to correct to, to last last winter are not being characterized accurately or at all um and and it's it, yeah you can look you can admit that ukraine is corrupt in many ways mm. no doubt you no. can also say it's not good for Russia to say, I just want sure. to take this country. They're not mutually exclusive. No, no, no not no, at all. No, they're not. And, and I think it, it's too bad we're, you know, we, we have kind of a we, – we do have a zero-sum thinking on it. Um, well, we like simple well, stories. I view it as a – Life is great. I, as I, you I, know, writing it, being artificial talents, it's great. There's right. a lot of great. There's a lot of good artificial talents you could do, and there's a lot of bad that could come about without the proper guardrails. You know, I, I, I wanted to give your audience one, one more thing to – to kind of meditate on before we, you know, reconvene whenever you want to have me back. Um, you had asked me early on to talk about what, what can people do? Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think what, what I would really emphasize in addition to, as I said, you know, figuring out where you're replaceable and where you're not, because we need to be honest with ourselves. A lot of what we do, right. AI can do and, and more effectively, uh, more cost effectively as a lot of businesses are going to are going to be be uh, be realizing or maybe already have but I think we we also need to remember that in almost every other context we use the term artificial negatively artificial food coloring right. artificial right. anything right. right so if that's the case you know if, if we do see this essentially as something false almost right that, that's kind of what we're, we're seeing with artificial <laughs> often you know what 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 are we getting into bed with and it just, I'm not, I'm not anti-tech, I'm not anti-AI for that matter, but we do need to be cognizant of what's, what's befallen us. We can't be lumps on the log. Folks, this is Breaking Battlegrounds. This is our end of our podcast portion. We hope you have a great week, and we'll look forward to you next week. The political field is all about reputation, so don't let someone squash yours online. Secure your name and political future with a yourname.vote web address from GoDaddy.com. Your political career depends on it.